Bibles tonight, if you would please, to Ephesians chapter 5. This evening, instead of introducing the subject of the sermon like I normally do before we begin reading, we're going to start right off reading tonight. So I'd like you to stand, please, as we read just this one scripture this evening from Ephesians chapter 5, and we're looking at verse number 18. It's a very unusual verse in the scriptures. Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 18. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your many blessings. I thank you, Lord, for all those who have come out tonight. As we consider this subject, I ask you, Lord, that you would open the hearts of every person. Help us to look into your word and find out what you would have us to do, what's best for us, and how we can best serve you. And we give you the praise for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Ephesians 5:18 And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess but be filled with the spirit. For the past several weeks we have been studying in this 5th chapter and we've been going over and over different contrasts that Paul uh, brings to us in the chapter, the differences between living a Christian life as God's dear children and being uh Christians who live like the world lives, or the way that we used to live before we were saved. And Paul contrasts this new Christian lifestyle that we're in now, or what it should be, and he uses such terms as the differences between darkness and light, the difference between being deceived and enlightened, the difference between being acceptable and unacceptable, the difference between being wise and unwise. And when we come down to this 18th verse, he introduces a new contrast for us. And this one is about being filled with the Spirit. The difference between being filled with the Spirit and not being filled with the Spirit. And as we come down to this verse, we see that Paul puts it in very unusual terms. I mean, it's almost shocking the way he does this, something that we totally would not expect. Because here Paul compares being filled with the Spirit and uses the contrast of intoxicating wine. And we may wonder, why would he use such a contrast or comparison as that? Well, there are some good reasons why Paul does this. And the primary teaching of this passage is that we are to be spirit-filled Christians. But that first statement that Paul makes, that's always like a clincher right there. Because it always brings up the question, is it all right for Christians to drink alcoholic beverages? In the early part of the 20th century, some of you remember it. We had a temperance movement. Anybody here remember that? I don't. It was before my time. But there was a temperance movement in the early part of the 20th century. And uh, eventually that led to the passage of the 18th Amendment to the Constitution. And that amendment uh, established a prohibition against the sale and the uh, uh, production of alcohol. I'm sure that if you didn't live by back then, which most of you didn't, you, you have seen television and movies about this. You probably watched Elliot Ness and The Untouchables and, and uh, learned about things like that. Uh, you, you probably heard about stills and moonshining that took place then and still takes place for that matter. You know, moonshine is, a, is really a clear liquid. It makes me wonder sometimes when I see you carrying in those water bottles. I don't always know what's in that. But... Um, And I always find it somewhat amusing that Joseph Kennedy, JFK's and Ted Kennedy's uh, father, made his fortune by selling scotch whiskey during the Prohibition, which of course was illegal. But uh, that's kind of a strange thing. But some have taken this 18th verse here in Ephesians chapter 5, and they've used that 
To make the main point of it, Paul teaching against the use of alcohol. But Paul's main point in this verse is not about the sin of drunkenness, although he does mention it, not about the use of alcohol, but his main point here is about being spirit-filled Christians. But we still can't escape the question because we're bound to ask the question, what does the Bible say about the use of alcohol? Is it all right for Christians to drink alcohol? And if so, how much can you drink? How much is too much? Or shouldn't we just stay away from alcohol altogether? Well, this evening I'm going to depart from the normal type of message that I would preach, and we're going to talk about this issue, about the use of alcohol. And I'm going to use the same word that Paul uses in the Scripture. He uses the word wine. And so if you hear me use the word wine as I preach the message, I'm referring to all different types of intoxicating beverages. I want you to understand, though, that I am fully aware that the main part, what Paul is trying to teach here is not about the issue of drunkenness or the issue of using wine. I understand that's not the main part of the message that he's trying to get across, and we're going to deal with the other part actually in in, uh, about four more messages after this, and we're going to talk about those things. But we're going to consider tonight this subject about using or not using wine, and is it all right for a Christian to drink alcohol? So what does the Bible say about the use of wine? Well, there are two main points that I'd like to consider tonight. And the first one is wine condemned in Scripture. There are many Scriptures in the Bible that do condemn the use of alcohol. Now, I want to say this up front, so just so you don't have to wonder what my position is. I do not believe that Christians ought to partake in the use of alcoholic beverages. I believe in total abstinence. And I do believe that there's plainly enough evidence in the Scriptures to teach us that. And we're going to talk about it tonight. Well, our church covenant makes this statement. It says, We also engage to maintain family and secret devotions, to religiously educate our children, to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances, to walk circumspectly in the world, to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements, and exemplary in our deportment to avoid all tattling, backbiting, and excessive anger, and to abstain from the use and sale of intoxicating drink as a beverage, and to be zealous in our efforts to advance the kingdom of our Savior. So our church covenant makes it very clear that by association, drinking alcoholic beverages would not be consistent with being a good testimony uh, to the world about our faith in Christ. Now, I'm going to address that particular part of it a little bit later on, but I want you to understand this, that regardless of whether we in here have differences of opinion about this subject, the Berean Baptist Church as a group have democratically decided that we are not going to uh, drink alcoholic beverages. That's not permitted among our membership. And so if this is a, a question about wine so that some think it's okay and some don't think it's okay then just be aware of this, that as a group, we have decided the Brian Baptist Church takes a position of total abstinence. So what does the Scripture say about this? Well, the Bible teaches us, first of all, that wine has disastrous effects. Now, whether you support the use of alcohol or not, there's not anyone who would argue. I mean, not even the producers of alcohol or wine would argue about this, that alcohol does not have disastrous effects. There are over 20 million alcoholics in the United States today. Shockingly enough, there are three and a half million of those that are teenagers. Alcohol has caused all kinds of of serious moral corruption. It's clouded the judgment of men in office. It's even caused battles to be lost. 
There are marriages that have been ruined by the use of it. In 2005, 39% of all traffic fatalities were directly related to alcohol. Now, thank the Lord for this, that law enforcement and stricter penalties have had an effect because you go back to 1982 and 60% of all uh, accidents, deaths and accidents were related to alcohol. But in 2005, there were 254,000 people who were injured in alcohol-related accidents. And if you figure that out, that is one person every two minutes of the year is injured because of alcohol. Well, we look at that, and of course we have all these national statistics about it, but the disastrous effects of alcohol were well known before we ever started keeping national statistics. We can go right back to the Bible, and we can find that when the Bible starts talking about drunkenness and the sin of drunkenness, that it's always associated with a horrible effect. You remember way back in the book of Genesis when Noah got off of the ark that the first thing that he did was he planted a vineyard, he started to grow some grapes, he made some alcohol, and then he got drunk. And many Bible expositors believe that that sin of drunkenness led him to an act of homosexuality. I don't know for sure if that's true or not, but uh, I do at least know this, that God put a curse upon one of Noah's descendants because of his drunkenness. When Lot escaped from Sodom, his daughters got him drunk and he committed incest with them. And from that union between Lot and his daughters came two children uh, by the name of Moab and Benami. Benami is better known as Ammon, the father of the Ammonites. And the Moabites and the Ammonites were the enemies of God's people throughout all of their history. In the book of Daniel, you can read the story about Belshazzar, who was the king of Babylon. And during a drunken feast, when they were uh, worshiping false gods, the kingdom of Babylon was taken away from Belshazzar. We come into the New Testament, and we find that even in the church of Corinth, Paul had to write to the church there and write to them about a drunken feast that they were celebrating at the Lord's Supper. And Paul told them that because of that, there were many of them who had died. God took their lives because of the sin of drunkenness. So there's ample proof no matter where you go. Nobody's going to argue about this. There are disastrous effects to wine. And as I say, when I say wine, I'm talking about alcohol. Well, Proverbs describes a condition that's all too familiar with those of us who who live in this part of the country, or really any part of the country for that matter. And the writer says in Proverbs chapter 23, verse 19, Hear thou, my son, and be wise, and guide thine heart in the way. Be not among wine-bibbers, among riotous eaters of flesh, for the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty, and drowsiness shall clothe a man with rags." You can take a walk in some of the seamier sections of of, uh, Santa Rosa tonight, and there you'll find many people who are drunk. They're lying in the gutters. They're homeless that are on the streets, men that are sleeping in their own vomit. Poverty is a disastrous result of drunkenness. And I dare say that we could probably find some folks right here in our congregation who can testify about what alcohol did in their homes. Perhaps there was a, a drunken father or a mother who couldn't get away from a bottle and children were abused and suffered because of alcohol. So if you wonder why I'm against it, why the Bible's against it, all you need to do is take a look at where it leads. It's never done any good for anybody. But not only does it have disastrous effects, it also has deceitful effects. In Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, it says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Every year at Super Bowl time, 
some of the most popular commercials on television are the beer commercials. Just about everybody watches those. And when you see those ads, what do you see? You see people having a good time. You, you see people that really, they're, they're really cool. They're, they're socially aware and they're up and coming people. They're living it up and they're all enjoying themselves. And they relay a message that you just really can't be happy and you don't know how to be with it. And you're, you're not with the in crowd unless you get with people who are drinking and have a few drinks. Whenever you see wine commercials on TV or you see them on the billboards, what do you see there? You see beautiful women with with diamonds on. You see people driving Mercedes and BMWs. You see a huge house with a beautiful chandelier. All of that is just enticing to you. And they try to make you think that you can be just like that. I can be suave and sophisticated if I just get in with the drinking crowd. But you know what you never see on a beer commercial? You never see an advertisement with a guy in a stained t-shirt with a beer belly slapping his wife and kicking his children around. You'll never see on one of those commercials a car lying upside down with a beer bottle or some other kind of liquor bottle lying nearby. You'll never see in those commercials people that are sitting around and they can't think straight and they've got spittle running down their cheeks because they're not aware of what's going on. Wine makes you think that you're really smarter than you are. And it makes you think that you're in control when you're not in control. It makes you think that you're happy when you're not really happy. All you're doing, you're sitting there in a stupor and you don't have any idea what's going on around you. That's why you're happy. So you're deceived when you think that alcohol is going to do you any good. Now back to that 23rd chapter of Proverbs in verse number 29. It says, Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine. They that go to seek mixed wine. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth its color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. At the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. So it has deceitful effects. But let's go on, because wine also has demonic effects. Now, if you'll study this thing out, you'll, you'll find out that in the pagan ceremonies, that wine, all different kinds of alcohol, played a very huge part in the worship of idols and demons. I don't have time to go into the whole story tonight, but if you look at the cities that Paul visited, Ephesus and, and Corinth and Romans and, the, uh, and Athens, the people that lived in those cities had these very kinds of problems. They were worshiping these false gods. They had these idolatrous practices, and wine, alcohol, played a huge part in that. One of the mythological gods that they worshiped was the god Dionysius. I want to quote for you just a moment from John MacArthur's commentary. He says, Dionysius developed a religion of ascendancy whereby human beings could rise to the level of divine consciousness. The mystical system he devised was comprised of wild music, frenzied dancing, sexual perversion, bodily mutilation, eating of raw flesh of sacrificial bulls, and drunkenness. That sounds like an Ozzy Osbourne concert. Dionysius became known as the god of wine. The intoxicating drink was integral to the debauched religion that centered around him. His Roman counterpart was Bacchus, from whose name we get Bacchanalia. The Roman festival celebrated with wild dancing, singing, drinking, and revelry that has for over 2,000 years been synonymous with drunken debauchery and sexual orgy. 
Did you know that you can drive right over here on Golf Course Drive down to the Doubletree Hotel and they have a Bacchus restaurant and wine bar that's named after that heathen Roman god of wine named Bacchus. Now, do you see here what Paul was up against at Ephesus? The very kinds of things that I just read you about, that's what Paul was confronting when he was talking to these people in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. That's the situation that he was up against. And if you think for a moment that, that Paul was saying, well, it's all okay, you can drink wine, that's okay, just don't drink too much of it, you are sadly mistaken. I do not think so. I think what Paul is telling these people, you ought to give up that nasty stuff. You need to get rid of, completely rid of the temptation from your life. It's no good for you. It's a reminder of that lifestyle that you used to live in. It's a reminder of all those things that you used to do. And all it's ever going to do for you is to dredge up those old memories of all those perversions that you were in. So Paul is not in any sense telling them that it's all right to take a little, just don't take too much. Well, that's what the Bible says about wine as far as condemning it. Wine is condemned in the Scripture. But now, secondly, I'd like to talk to you about wine considered for saints. Now, of course, we've been talking here about the excessive use of wine, but is a little bit okay. Is it okay if we just drink a little bit of it? Well, first I'd tell you, don't forget the church covenant. It's not okay, not according to our church covenant, but our church covenant, of course, is not the final appeal. But where in the Bible, or does the Bible say that we, we can't use alcohol? Does the Bible prohib- prohibit the use of all alcohol? Well, one of the excuses that people give when they say it's all right for us to drink is they say that in the Bible times, they had these intoxicating wines, and they had to drink those because there was no way that they could preserve grape juice without it fermenting. And so they had to drink intoxicating wines. Well, let's talk about that for just a minute, because here's the truth of the matter. Bible wines are not the same as modern wines. So there are many people who do think it's okay. They say, well, they drank wine in the Bible times, but the wine that they drank in the Bible times was not the same as the wines that we have today. Now, of course, it was possible for them to produce intoxicating wines because if it weren't, we wouldn't even be talking about this tonight because the Bible wouldn't know anything about it. They did produce intoxicating wines, and that's why we have all these warnings against drinking. But what is the common drink referred to in the Bible as wine? And whenever wine is used in the good sense in the Scripture, what's that referring to? Well, they're actually several types of wines that are mentioned in the Bible. But what's most often referred to in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word yayin, which is translated as wine. And what that word actually means is to bubble or to boil up. And the reference that that's making there is to boiling fresh grape juice. So they would boil the grape juice, and what they would do is they would reduce this to a thick paste, and that enabled them to store the, the, the grapes without spoiling. In the boiling process, most of the water was removed, the bacteria was killed, and in the concentrated state, that grape, those grapes would not ferment. Well, when they decided they were going to drink this kind of grape juice or this wine, they just added water to the fluid. And and even if they did allow it to ferment, the alcohol content of it was so low that it was almost impossible to get drunk by it. And I'll explain that in just a minute. Well, in the New Testament, we have the very same kind of wine mentioned, and that's translated by the word oinos. And the word oinos can actually refer to fermented wine with alcoholic content or, or that what's not fermented. 
But most often in the scriptures, what it's actually talking about when it speaks of wine, and any time it's used in a good sense, it's referring to this reconstituted grape juice. Well, that practice of, of boiling grapes in order to reduce it to, to a paste is still used in Palestine today. And what they do many times is they take that paste and they use it like a jam. And they spread it on pastries and, and on bread. But if they do decide that they're going to drink it, they do the same thing they did back in the Bible times. They just add a little bit of water to it and they drink that. And there's plenty of evidence from secular history and, and plenty of evidence from Jewish ceremonies and about what Christians did that the early Christians did not use the kind of wines that we use today. What they drank was nothing more than reconstituted grape juice that was made when you added water to that paste. Now, here's another thing that we notice, that when the strongest wines were drunk, they almost always diluted it with water. And the common practice in those days was to mix these wines, one part wine to three parts water. If you know anything about wine, if you allow uh, grapes to naturally ferment, what you end up with is about 9 to 11% alcohol. So if you had a wine that was 9 to 11% alcohol and you mixed it 3 to 1 with water, what you would end up with is about 2 and a quarter to 2 and 3 quarters percent alcohol. Now, even in our country, in order for a, a, a beverage, an alcoholic beverage, to be considered alcoholic, it has to contain at least 3.2% alcohol. So you can see that if you were going to get drunk by drinking two and a quarter to two and three quarters percent alcohol, that you'd have to spend a lot of time and drink a lot of it in order to get drunk. Now, we notice in the Bible that that's exactly what the Bible is talking about when it speaks about sitting long at the wine and, and, and indulging in, in large con- quantities of the wine in order to get drunk. That's exactly what the Bible is talking about. So there is absolutely no such thing as Christians sitting around or even unsaved people sitting around for the most part and drinking the kind of alcoholic con- content wines that are drunk today. And they even considered it among the heathen people. That, that was considered to be a barbaric practice because they knew just to drink a small quantities of that kind of wine would put a person very quickly into a drunken stupor. So you can't make a case in any way that you go at this to say that, that, that Christians today could drink Gallo or, or Kendall Jackson or Stag's Leap or, or Ripple or anything like that. No Christian in the Bible would ever dare touch a wine with these kinds of alcohol contents that we have today. But you know, when you talk about this, there are many people, uh, they want to be Bible scholars. And so they'll quickly refer to Jesus' first miracle when he made the wine at the marriage feast of Cana. And they've got this idea in their heads that what Jesus did there was he made Corbell or something like that. What is that, champagne? And, and, and that's what Jesus made. And he made the very best wine that was available, the best alcoholic wine that you could get. Well, let's turn there just a minute. Look in John chapter 2, if you would, please. We're going to read about this, and we're going to think about what Jesus did in light of the things that we've already discussed. John chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. 
His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water, that it was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. Now, do you suppose that Jesus is at the marriage feast of Cana, and what he does here, he makes between 100 and 120 gallons of wine that's made up of 11% alcohol. Do you think that Jesus would have said to those wedding guests, well, drink all of this that you want, because I can sure make plenty more if you need it. Well, if you think so, then you've got the wrong idea about who Jesus is. Jesus did not make intoxicating wine at the marriage feast of Cana. What he made was the common drink of the day. What he made was the very best sweet grape juice that could possibly have been made. When I preached about this in our series in John, I I read from Albert Barnes' commentary. Uh, Barnes is a commentator from the 19th century. He said, This wine was not brandied wine, nor drugged wine, nor wine compounded of various substances such as we drink in this land. The common wine drunk in Palestine was that which was the simple juice of the grape. So nobody dare take this incident where Jesus made water into wine at the marriage feast of Cana and use that as an excuse that it's all right for Christians to drink wine today. People who say that saints can drink wine because Jesus made wine, they don't know what they're talking about because the Bible wines are not the same thing as we drink today. Uh, I say that we, I don't mean we. Not we. All right, we're going to shift gears here for just a moment. Somebody told me the other day, you choose your words very carefully. So I'm going to have to back up a little bit and not say we. Uh, Let's shift gears here just a minute. Now we're going to look at this argument from the perspective of what God expects from his people. I think that we could say this, and and I don't think that anybody here at least would disagree with me, that God demands a higher standard. I mean, don't you really think that, and don't you think it's true, that God demands a standard that's higher than what the world lives by. God wants a different standard for his people. And the way we know that is because not only does God say that we're to stay away from evil, he says to stay away from all appearance of evil. Don't even look like you're going to do something wrong. Well, I want you to notice who God says should not drink wine. God holds us to a higher standard. So who has a higher standard? And God says not to drink wine. Well, first of all, God told priests not to drink wine. Priest, as we know, is someone who represents God. And the greater responsibilities that a person has, then the higher standards that required of that person. 
If you go back in the Old Testament and you look at what the priest did, when a priest got ready to make a sacrifice for himself, and the priest had to do that, he was not allowed to make the same kind of a sacrifice that the common people could make. If you had a man who was poor and couldn't bring a a, a lamb or a bull out of his flock, or out of his herds, I should say, or a, a sheep from his flock, he was allowed to bring a bird. He could bring a turtle dove or a pigeon, and he could offer that because he was poor. But not in the case of a priest. The priest could never do that. He always had to offer a bull. And the reason that he did was because the standard required was higher. He has greater responsibilities, so he has a higher standard. Also in his personal life, the priest was held to a higher standard. If we look in Leviticus chapter 10, the Lord was speaking directly to Aaron. He was the designated high priest. And he says, do not drink wine nor strong drink. Thou nor thy sons with thee when ye go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. Well, Aaron, of course, is, is God's representative. In fact, we do know this, that Aaron's role was typical of Christ, who is our high priest. So the garments that Aaron wore, we've studied about that. I mean, all the garments that he wore as the high priest had something to say about the Lord Jesus Christ and about his perfections. So God says directly to Aaron, the high priest of Israel, Aaron, don't drink wine. And that's because God was holding him to a higher standard. Now, if you wanted to make the case, well, what God says here is is he, he really hasn't forbidden the rest of the Israelites to drink wine. He's just talking about the priest here. Well, let's keep that in mind for just a minute. If he is just talking about the priest, at least we do know this, that he prevented, he ordered the priest not to drink wine. But not just the priest, because the Bible set a higher standard for someone else. It also sets a higher standard for kings. Now, that certainly makes sense because we do know that kings have greater responsibility. When you read in the New Testament, kings are referred to as rulers. And also in the New Testament, rulers are referred to as ministers of God. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 13, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Verse number 3, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Verse 4, For he is the minister of God to thee for good. So since the responsibility of a minister was to this type of minister or the king or ruler is to execute good human government. The Bible says that a king is not to drink wine. We find that in Proverbs chapter 31. It says, It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. So if nothing else, we we would understand this, that wine perverts the judgment of just a common man. Well, the Bible says there's especially a prohibition for kings to drink wine because of the responsibility and the position that he has. And I could go on and I could explain to you about other people in the Scripture that had very special responsibilities, and God says they're not to drink wine. Let me give you an example. John the Baptist is an example. John had taken the vow of a Nazarite in total dedication to God. Now, John was a great man, no question about that. John was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. It was prophesied in the Old Testament that John would come. John was the one who introduced Jesus into his public ministry. I don't think there's any doubt among us that John was a great man. 
But I want you to listen to what Jesus said about him in Matthew chapter 11. He said, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. But listen, notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. We ought to take a serious look at that because God is saying something here about each of us here tonight who's saved and a part of the Lord's church. And what God is saying is he demands a higher standard. We're in a higher position. So God demands a higher standard for priests and for kings. And number three, he demands one for you. There's a higher standard for priests and kings and for you. And that's because you are a priest and a king. But not only are you a priest and a king, but the Bible also teaches that you have a greater position in the kingdom of heaven because you're a part of Christ's church. John the Baptist was not a part of the church. He was the last prophet of the Old Testament era. And that's why Jesus said that he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And what Jesus is trying to tell us, there is a higher standard for Christians. It's a higher standard because we are part of the church. And so if John the Baptist, who is least in the kingdom of God, could not drink wine, it was not for him, then certainly the people of God who are part of the Lord's church, the part of the uh, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a higher standard placed upon us. God is not going to lower the standard for Christians. So what does the Bible say about your priesthood and your kingship? Revelation chapter 1 says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, verse 6, And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. And there you see priest and king combined, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He says in verse number 5 of the same chapter, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. He's talking about the church here to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable, acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So if the Bible says that you are a priest... It says that you are a king. If it says you have a greater position in the kingdom of heaven than John the Baptist, then don't you think you have greater responsibilities? And if you have greater responsibilities, do you think that you ought to drink wine when it was specifically forbidden of those who had these kinds of responsibilities? Well, if you're saved, the Bible says you represent the Lord Jesus Christ. You're the ambassador of Christ on this earth. And there's plenty of scriptures in the Bible that describe it. There's all kinds of things here that are written about the Christian, what Christians are supposed to do. And that's talking about you. I mean, for goodness sakes, what have we been studying all through chapter 5 here, all the way down to verse number 18? What's Paul saying? You're living on a higher plane now. You're different from the world. And you're to come out from the world and be separate and not to participate in the unfruitful works of darkness. So God demands a higher standard for his people. Now, I think that we can uh, sum it up by saying this, and that is God demands a better testimony. Now, let's go back to this thought again. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 22. It says, abstain from all appearance of evil. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Does alcohol have the potential for abuse? 
Yes. Is the abuse of alcohol ever a temptation? Yes. Because throughout the scriptures, Satan has always used alcohol for temptation. We saw that in the case of Noah, the case of Lot, the case of Belshazzar, even with the Corinthian church. So, of course, it has potential for abuse. What did David say? I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. In other words, I'm not going to let myself be tempted. I'm not going to indulge it. I don't have any part of it. I won't be tempted by it. Well, is it possible for a lost person or some weak Christian to be offended by your use of alcohol? Is that possible? Let me give you a personal testimony. A few months ago, I was having lunch at Chili's. One of the local preachers right here from Roner Park came over to my table and was speaking to me. I asked him how he was doing and what, what was going on. And he said, well, you know, I'm here with a bunch of other preachers. And I said, oh, really? Yeah. And he said, you know something? He looked at me kind of strange. He said, you know something? I ordered a beer and none of the other preachers would have one. I think I'm a strong Christian. That offended me. What would you think if Pastor Smith of Brian Baptist Church sat down with the boys and had a beer? How would you like that? I mean, what would you think about it? If that didn't wound your conscience, folks, it would sure wound mine. It would. Without doubt, we know this. People can be led astray by using these kinds of things that are turned into vices. Don't you think a person who's a member of Berean Baptist Church who may have had a father or a mother and they had to go through an abusive family, abusive family situation, do you not think that they would be offended by the use of alcohol among the members of Brian Baptist Church. What if we decided to do this, that next week, or next month rather, at our snack shack, let's say we're going to make this snack shack BYOB. Bring your own booze night. We're all going to bring it and have a, have a beer, have a drink, have some wine with our meal. What would you think about that? Most of you probably wouldn't approve of that, I don't think. Well, if it's not all right to use it here, why is it all right to have it at home? What makes it right? Do you think it's wise for you to have it in your refrigerator where, or your wine rack where your teenagers can see it and get their hands on it? Is there potential for abuse or a temptation to drink it? We know there is. It's happened right around here. We most certainly do know that it is. How many of you tonight would go home and load a gun and leave it lying out for the kids to get a hold of? Nobody's going to do that. But alcohol has every bit as much potential for abuse and harm as a gun does. All of us are a living testimony. The Bible says all of us are a living testimony in one way or another. In Romans chapter 14, verse 7 and 8, it says, For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. In writing to the Corinthians, that very same church that Paul upbraided for their use of alcohol in the Lord's Supper, he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all 
to the glory of God. Now, if there's anything I've tried to preach in this church for the last five years, it's that everything we do is for the glory of God. If you haven't learned that, then I can't get through to you. Verse 33, Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but listen, the profit of many, that they may be saved. Do you know if we had that thought in our mind that what we do is for the profitable that people may be saved? Do you think we'd be arguing, Christians would be arguing over the use of alcohol? If it was our thought in mind, whatever we do, it's to lead people to Jesus Christ, that we'd be thinking about things like this? Certainly not. Here's the last question for your listening sheet tonight. I want you to think about this. Can I drink alcohol with full confidence before God and others that it is right. If you haven't decided the answer to that question yet, then I want you to listen to this last verses, these last verses I want to read before you decide. Romans chapter 14, verse 21. It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in the thing which he alloweth. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat. Now, right there, you can substitute drink if you want to, because eating here uh, considers everything that you ingest. He that doubteth is damned if he eat. In other words, if you're not sure about this, you are a doubter. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. I could put it to you simply. If you're not thoroughly convinced that when you take that drink, that you're doing what's absolutely right, and that's pleasing to God, the Bible says right here, it is sin. So my conclusion, how much is too much? Any alcohol is too much for a Christian. And so, therefore, Christians ought not ever to drink alcoholic beverages. I'm going to do something that I've offered before in other sermons. If you would like to rebut this sermon, go right ahead. We'll talk about it. I have no fear to discuss this subject with you. And if you can prove to me that alcohol, it's right for us to drink, and it's okay for Christians, the next Shack Shack, we'll have it. Is that fair enough? All right. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the wisdom that you give us from your word. These things aren't really so hard to figure out when we just look into your word, see what you have to say, and understand, Lord, this one great principle, everything that we do is for the glory of God. Lord, I ask you to speak to someone's heart tonight. If they're still unsure about this, then all we can say is there's stubbornness in that heart that needs to be removed. Lord, speak to our people. And we thank you, Lord, for the good people of Berean Baptist Church who hold up a good standard of testimony for the world. And truly, Lord, we want our testimony to bring other people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.